We are on a series called This is the End, where we've been talking about the end. We've been taking a deep dive into the study of eschatology. All right, eschatology is simply the study of last things. Eschatology attempts to answer questions like, uh, how, how do we interpret prophetic text in Scripture? Is it literal or is it figurative? And which is which? What is the end time timeline? What, what does that look like? What signs indicate that the end may be approaching? And a lot of other questions. Now, we've covered a lot of stuff. We've gone in pretty deep onto some theology stuff. And uh, I, I debated whether or not I should do another series, another message on this next week. Uh, but in the end, I decided it's time to just land this plane. Uh, and part of the reason is, is because when I look at many of you while I'm flying this plane, many of you have motion sickness, right? I just see it on your face. Like we should have gave out, we should have just passed out barf bags for this series because nothing says welcome to reveal like someone throwing up their breakfast next to you, right? So we're going to land the plane today. We'll move on to something else next week. Many of you will be like, yes, I'm so, I'm so happy we're getting on to something else. So uh, this will be the last one. So brace yourself. We have a lot to cover in order to make that happen. Now, next week, we are starting a new series called No Cap, No Cap, Predecide a Better Life. Now, I was talking to Daniel Arianus about the series and you know what we're going to call it. And he sends me this huge text full of emojis and an explanation of what no cap means. And he's just like, bip, 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 bip. and I'm literally, it's like, a, it's a short book. And he's telling me, this is what no cap means in the younger generation, and blah, 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 blah. And all I respond back with, I know what it means. All right? It's like, and I felt pretty good, because like, I do know what it means. If you don't know what it means, you're going to need to come here next week to figure out what it needs. A new series starting next week, pre-decide to have the life that you want, and the, more importantly, the life that God wants for you. So that starts next week. Be here for that. All right. Our study of eschatology has, has brought us to the book of Revelation and other prophetic text in Scripture uh, that deals with the last day. And we said that the problem with the text is the text, right? They're, they are difficult to interpret. There are obscure passages of beasts and dragons and plagues and a scorched earth and lakes of fire and locusts that have the face of men. Uh, it, it, it's, just, it's a difficult text to kind of get our mind around. Prophetic text in Scripture is often what is known as an apocalyptic genre. And there are numerous genres in Scripture. Not all of it is the same. There is narrative, there is history, there is a poetic, there is wisdom literature, right? Knowing the genre that you're reading goes a long way in how you interpret the genre, ter interpret the text that you're reading. In other words, you would not read Time magazine the same way that you would read a comic book, right? They're different genres. So the apocalyptic genre in Scripture, it's meant to be shocking. It's meant to be jarring to get your attention. It's full of hyperbole. It's exaggerated. Not, not exaggerated in order to deceive, but to communicate the extent or the severity of an event. Right? It's meant to like, like this is a big thing that is coming. Remember, we're dealing with a foreign language, a foreign culture, a foreign genre, which all means that interpreting the text can be extremely problematic, which has ignited ongoing debate within the realm of Christianity and has spawned multiple, multiple theories and opinions within Orthodox Christianity. 
What is clear, and let me make this part very clear, what is clear and what is not disputed is that Jesus will one day return for his church. Amen? He will. Some of you are like, will he? Well, he will. I'm going to try that again because your response was very poor. All right? Jesus will. Right now, he's just returning for this side because they're the only people that. So if you guys want to get in, you better work it. Right? The promise is, is that one day Jesus will return for his church. Amen? All right. Now we're all going together. That makes me feel better. Now, why so many different opinions? Well, we said that the lens by which you read the text often will determine the meaning, the direction, or at least the application of the text. And we said there are four lenses by which we can read the text through. We'll put it on the screen. We said one of those lenses is a futurist lens. And they will read Revelation and and the other apocalyptic prophetic literature uh, most literally in the reading of the text. And a futurist sees the book of Revelation as being future events that are in our future, right? They're looking forward to the fulfillment of the events in Revelation or the Olivet Discourse, things things like that, right? Everything is forward-looking. But there's another lens, which is a preterist lens. comes from the Latin praetor, which means past. And so while a preterist looks forward to the fulfillment of these prophecies, a preterist reads the same passage and says, I think it actually happened earlier, right? It it was future when it was first written, right? And there's debate on that, but uh, I'll take an earlier writing of it, 65 um, AD. Some say 90, I think it's earlier, Um, right? So it it was future for those who originally read it, but sometimes 70 AD in the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, I think that is what most of that prophetic genre literature is speaking of. And I talked about that two weeks ago. You can circle back and you can listen to it. But then there is also an idealist lens. Reading prophetic scripture through an idealist lens, not all of it, but many of the passages, they would say that it does not predict specific or historical events, but rather it's historic. Uh, it, it speaks of the, the timeless, right? The, the timeless battle between good and evil. So uh, it's not literal events, rather it highlights the kind of events, the kind of events that occur throughout all generations, okay? And then the last view is the historicist view, and they kind of say, well, it was prophetic, but the prophecy started to come uh, to be fulfilled from the launch of the church, uh, and they kind of will look at the seven churches of Revelation, they'll overlay it on scripture, it gets very confusing. Largely, the historicist view has fallen out of popularity. All right, of the four views, I told you uh, two weeks ago that I personally lean towards the preterist view with some idealist undertones. I think much of what was written was accomplished 70 AD with the Jewish temple. Um, we unpacked that a couple weeks ago. I think you can make a pretty strong case of this idea of, of Nero being the idea of the beast, right? Uh, but then I also lean, there are, I think there are some idealist tendencies in there. When Revelation 11, I think, talks about the two witnesses, I, I think right, that's symbolic of, of the church at times being powerful and moving the gospel forward, at other times seeming like the church is dead and God will resurrect the church to accomplish its mission. But as I've been saying throughout this whole series, that's just me. You don't have to agree with me, right? The idea behind this series is I want you to do some research so you know what you believe. Here's the thing. I don't want you to just know what you believe. I want you to know why you believe what you believe. 
And if the only reason why you believe in this idea of a rapture is because you saw Nicolas Cage and left behind, that's not a good reason for why you believe what you believe. All right. In the end, the lens used to interpret the text will cause two things. First, it will determine the direction and the meaning and the application of the text. Right? We talked about this week two. The futurists are looking forward to an event to occur. Right? So they're looking at things like who is the Antichrist. Uh, they're looking at events like, um, well, this is going back some time, but uh, when barcodes were first introduced, uh, they were saying, well, barcodes, we're looking forward. Barcodes are coming, and that's the mark of the beast. And nobody wanted to use barcodes, right? Missed it by that much. So, so, but they're, they're forward-looking. Preterists, looking back, saying it already happened. An idealist, not literal event. So an idealist would say, uh, is there an antichrist? They would say, well, yeah, in a general sense, in every period of time, there will always be someone or multiple people who have influence or standing against the things of God coming against the church. Right? It's symbolic of the, the ongoing battle between good and evil. So it will determine the direction. And then we said the last thing it will do is it will cause you to land on one of three eschatological, big word, positions. And remember, eschatological is just the study of last things. Eschatological, eschatological. I like saying it to see the interpreter try to keep up with me. Eschatological. Uh, so she gives me a hard time. Uh, next week, we're only going to use words like love, joy. Joy is an easy one, to, right? All right, so... So it'll cause you to land on one of three positions, right? The amillennialist view, known as amillennialism, the premillennialism view, or the postmillennialism view. What do they all have in common? What they all have in common is the name, the millennium, right? That's what we're going to talk about today as we close out this series, because by the time we're done, you will know what the three positions are. So we're going to discuss what is the millennium, how does it apply to end times? And keep your thinking caps on. We're going to be moving quickly. So Lord, bless us as a study of your word. Enlighten us. Give us a hunger for your word is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Millennium, the idea is found in Revelation 20. We'll put it on the side screens. It says, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. I remember, this is John's vision. Having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan and bound him for a thousand years, millennium. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out and deceive the nations. Now, Again, all three eschatological views are an attempt to understand the return of Christ in relation to the millennium, right? This thousand-year reign that we just read, thousand-year reign where Satan is bound. Here's what you need to know. The only text we have on the millennium is right here, right? So Revelation 20, that's it, and it's not all that clear. Right? Because remember, apocalyptic text, there's a lot of imagery, there's a lot of metaphors that, that, that are being used. And so it spawned a lot of debate and opinions. But this is what we can gather from the text. For example, uh, we can gather that Satan is bound. Right? 
uh, we can gather that there is a duration of a thousand years. Now we're going to break some of this down. We can gather that he, Satan is locked or sealed away in an abyss, right? And remember the imagery, doesn't, it doesn't literally mean an abyss, right? Could, but he's, he's sealed away somehow. The results are to keep him from deceiving the nations. And after a thousand years, Satan is released. So remember, we're reading apocalyptic genre. It's hyperbolic, heavy imagery. For example, there's not a literal dragon. Okay? And Satan is not bound by a bike chain and a bicycle lock. All right? Stop him with a schlag doesn't work here. It's imagery of what is taking place. Right? So because of the genre and because of the limited information that we have, right, we're left with a lot of questions about the millennium. Like, what is the millennium? When is the millennium? Christians disagree on this. Right? Is it literal or is it figurative? Is it a literal thousand years? To what degree is Satan bound? And the most difficult question is this one, how do you spell millennium? Right? Because that's what some of you are thinking. Now, we're going to try to make sense of this. Remember, remember, all three positions fit within the framework of Orthodox Christianity. So if you don't agree with me when I tell you where I land, that's okay. Right? This isn't an issue of faith. It's not an issue of maturity. All of these fit within the framework of Christianity. We just disagree on how a passage of Scripture is to be interpreted. All right? So first one we're going to look at is the premillennial view. We talked about this earlier. I'm going to just review it. I have a new chart for you. Hopefully you find it to be helpful. And there we are. Okay. So uh, let's, let's, let's jump into the idea of the millenniums. All right? Premillennium. We'll set up the timeline. First thing I want you to notice, this will be constant in all of them. There is the cross. I hope you know about the cross. Jesus, right, put to death. And then there is that little heart's all I could find for a resurrection, right? Jesus comes back to life. We spare no expense here, right? CCV would have actually had someone play the role of Jesus, took it a picture and put it up there. We can't do that, right? So we have a little heart. That is the resurrection, and then there is the ascension. I had to abbreviate that. There'll be a lot of abbreviations coming. There is the ascension where Jesus goes up into heaven. And then there is Pentecost. So the church agrees on this part, right? The cross, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, the, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit that empowers his church and launches us into that big green bar called the church age. The big question that we have is, well, where do we find ourselves in this particular timeline? And, and premillennialists would say, well, we are in the church age, which I would agree on, right? We're, we're in the launch of the church. Now, in the premillennialist view, we're in the church age, and we are what? We're, we're, we're looking forward, right? Because typically, this will come with a futurist lens, Right? comes with the futurist lens and looking forward to the things that are to come, right? We're looking forward to the prophecy in Scripture to be fulfilled. And so in the premillennialist view, this idea of the tribulation is where? It's ahead of us, right? And so we're waiting for the things that Revelation speaks about, the seven bowls, the seven trumpets, the seven seals, all of that kind of, all of, that kind of evil, right? We're waiting for that to happen. It lies ahead of us. 
all sorts of evil and wickedness and famine and war and persecution and the Antichrist. I think Scripture says something about the Cowboys win 10 consecutive Super Bowls. It's bad stuff, all right? It's really evil stuff. So, now, prior to this idea of the tribulation, the premillennialists hold to this view of a rapture. All right, now notice it comes before the tribulation. This is what the entire Left Behind series was based on, a premillennialist view of the end times. All right, prior to this tribulation, there is a rapture. This is also the first, right? This is also the first resurrection. And in the premillennialist view, there are a ton of resurrections. People can't stay dead in this view, all right? So there's a, a, a resurrection that happens here and the church escapes, okay? So, so there is this idea of a rapture or get out of free uh, jail card. Uh, and understand, I talked about this three weeks ago, the rapture is a fairly new addition to Christian theology as of the 19th century, right? Prior to that, the rapture, it really wasn't a, a mainstream thing. Matter of fact, some of you won't, you, won't like to, you won't like to hear this if you're a rapture person. I'm totally okay if you are, right? It's not a maturity question. You should be okay that I'm not, right? Largely today, rapture theology is falling out of favoritism because many are starting to see we think we misinterpreted a, a portion of Scripture uh, in that. But again, you can do your own research uh, on, on that. So, uh, this, this is what we, we, we have so far. We have the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, Pentecost. There is the church age. And then there is a rapture where the church disappears. right? And then what is left is the tribulation and all hell breaks loose in the tribulation. Now, notice where Jesus is going to return. right? The, the return is coming after the tribulation, and specifically where it's going to come is pre before the millennium. That's where you get the term pre-millennium. You're like, oh, okay, that makes sense, that makes sense. So now, pre-millennium, okay? This idea of the rapture, right, where Jesus comes to take his church, um, it, it, it is kind of falling out of, of, of favor just a, a little bit, so, so be aware of this. This tribulation right here is typically thought of, uh, of being a, a seven-year tribulation. Uh, in the premillennial view, the full return of Christ happens here. So there is a rapture. Jesus comes to earth, but he doesn't get his feet dirty. He kind of hovers above the sky, hovers above the earth, captures the church up with them, the church leaves, the tribulation takes place, right? And when the, the tribulation is finally over, then there is this return of Christ, and this, premillennialists would say, this is where Satan is bound, right? We just talked about that in Revelation 20. I'll read it here in just a moment. For the premillennialist, this idea of the millennium is literal, Right? They will tell you it is a literal thousand years and Jesus reigns over the earth physically on earth and they would say not only does he reign on earth 
He reigns on earth, but he also reigns from Jerusalem. I'm running out of space on my thing. He reigns from uh, Jerusalem. So comes down, he establishes a throne literally in Israel. There's a physical throne. He's ruling over the nations on earth. Now, important. A distinguishing mark of premillennialism is the prominent position that Israel holds in their eschatology, right? Because Jesus reigns in Israel for a thousand years. It's a physical reigning for a thousand years in Israel, and a premillennialist, depending what side of the coin you land on, they would say that Israel is largely converted to Christ during this time. Some will say they are converted to Christ. Others would say that God has a different plan of salvation for them altogether. It's not my thing, but there are a lot of people that, that, that believe that. I hold that Jesus is the only way. So if, if God deals with Israel somehow, it's going to be through Jesus. Right? There's, not a, there's not an ulterior plan or, or another plan that God uses to, to deal with Israel. So Satan is bound, literally bound, completely. And because he's bound, it allows for the millennium, the reign of Christ, to take place. Right? Look at Revelations 20, Revelation 20 again. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who was the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, the millennium, and he threw him into the abyss, locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short period of time when the thousand years are over. So what's next on the timeline for a premillennialist? Well, Satan is loosed, right? So... They would say, all right, so we find ourselves here. We're in the church age. We're looking forward to the events to come. No fear. Most premillennialists would say we're going to get taken out before the rapture, but the, the bad stuff is coming. Then there'll be the return of Christ. Satan is bound. He sets up this millennial reign of peace and prosperity upon the earth. But then, after a period of time, they would say it's a literal thousand years. Satan is loosed, and that's what we just read. Satan is loosed for a short period of time, but in the end, right, in the end, there is another uh, return where, uh, well, not a return, but there is a judgment and another resurrection that takes place here. There is a resurrection that takes place here, and there was the rapture resurrection. So like I said, people can't stay dead in this, in this right, ideology. So there's at least three resurrections. But in the end, Satan is loose, but in the end, somewhere in this moment, Jesus uh, uh, brings about a final judgment of both evil, but also of all people, and then that is what moves us into the eternal state where there is a new heaven and a new earth, and, and all things are hunky-dory, and we're like, yeah, we won, right? So this is the idea of premillennialism. Now, it is the most complicated of all three views. Because there are so many resurrections, there is a rapture, there's a return, there's a millennium, there's, you know, there, there, there's another judgment, right? There's, there, it, it's just a difficult eschatology. But premillennialists do make some really strong points. Like if you listen to someone preach on it, you'll be like, oh, that's good, that's good. And some of it is really strong. So if, if you land in this camp, more power to you, no issues with that, right? But it is not the only view. 
right? We have the, the pre-millennialist view, and then we also have the post-millennialist view. So uh, I'll leave the, the pre up there uh, at least for a while, and then I'll, I'll get rid of it, but I want you to see some of the differences. All right, post-millennial view. We have the same timeline. It's still the cross. It's still the resurrection. There's still the ascension. There's still Pentecost. Nobody's disputing that. We all agree that that part is, is the same. The cross, the resurrection, the ascended Pentecost empowers the church, and now we are in the church age in the post-millennial timeline. You can be anywhere on that green bar. It doesn't matter. All right, we're, we're in the church age. Now, a post-mill position will use either a preterist or an idealist lens, right? In other words, they're not forward-looking for the tribulation. Remember, the pre-mill, they're looking forward for the events of revelation and the prophetic event to happen sometime in the future. A post-millennialist, they're not looking to the future, right? They, a preterist, past, they're saying this has already happened for the most part. And so they are looking back, and as they look back to the idea of 70 AD, right, they would look back, and so a post-millennialist would say, well, the tribulation as spoken of in Revelation, or especially in the Olivet Discourse, we covered it two weeks ago, that already happened. Which, if you don't want to go through bad times, that's a pretty good idea, right? Now, so they would say 70 AD, the fall of Jerusalem and, and all of that, and go back and circle back and listen to the message. But they're looking back, and they're saying, well, we, we think it has already happened. Now, a distinguishing mark of post-millennialist is the belief that we are either in the millennium now, or they would say that the church is responsible to usher in the millennium. Right? So this thousand-year reign. Now, notice the difference of, of, of what we have. So there is a tribulation here, and then comes the millennium. The post-millennium view changes where the millennium runs parallel with the church age, at least for some period of time. So the post-millennial view says that the church is responsible to usher in the millennium or the figurative reign of Christ. You with me? So the, and, and, they, and they would say it's not a literal millennium, but it's figurative, meaning Jesus has not come back. He doesn't set up his uh, throne in Jerusalem. He reigns from heaven, and it's a spiritual reign, not a physical reign. So it differs. This is an earthly reign, right? This is, I'm running out of space. This is a heavenly reign, completely different. So... Here is where things start to change for the two positions. As part of the church age, it becomes our job to usher in the millennium by Christianizing the world, is what a post-millennialist would, would say. All right? uh, they would see it as a figurative reign. In the post-millennial view, this is important, the job of the church is to establish God's kingdom here and now, Right? And we need to establish a kingdom on earth that is fit for a king. In other words, Jesus will not come back for his church until the church establishes a kingdom that is fitting for the king of the kingdom. And so Jesus will not return for his church until the church ushers in, and you'll hear this, this term a lot, this idea of a golden age within the earth. This idea of the golden age 
is just when everything is clicking, right? There is this, this um, period of time, indeterminate, it's figurative, it may be a thousand years, it may be 2,000 years, it may be 5,000 years, that number is just like, it's just a big number. So when scripture says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, it's not talking about a literal thousand hills, it's just figurative. So a post-millennial will say that thousand year reign, it's, it's figurative. However, again, this idea of this golden age is that the, the church will usher in this golden age of faith and it will be seen throughout the world. So a post-millennialist is an end-time view that focuses on the progressive victory and expansive influence of Christianity. Let me tell you what I mean. Millennialists, right, what, what, what are they going to think? They're going to they're think the, the earth is, or that the timeline is getting worse. And why wouldn't they, right? We're, the, the tribulation's next on the docket. And so they're going to say, man, things are just going to get worse. Well, the post-millennialists would say, no, we actually believe things are going to get better because we're going to usher in the millennium, and when the millennium comes, things will improve, right? It's a progressive victory. It believes that ushering in the millennium, however long that period of time is, the church will Christianize the world so the economic, political, and cultural life will be vastly improved. So all of the earth benefits, okay? As we Christianize the world, what a post-millennialist would say is that some point in this period is when Satan is bound. And he's bound, and that's how the world begins to change. Right? That's how good begins to happen. That's how people are converted to Christianity. That's how everyone has enough food. And, and, and there's this golden age that is beginning to happen uh, in, in the world. So that, that, that's an important part. Um, every part of culture. Now remember, pre-mills believe, again, that's a literal thousand years. Post would say it is figurative. Jesus is reigning spiritually from heaven. Pre-mills see the, the world is getting worse. Post-mills see everything as getting better. However, in the post-mill world, eventually Satan is loosed. Um, and when Satan is loosed, the, uh, you know, things start to deteriorate and go downhill. And then we come to the victorious return of Jesus. There is a return. This is the only resurrection that post-mills would say. There is one resurrection. This is the judgment, and this is what ushers us into the eternal state of all things. All right, so look at the, the differences between the two. In the post-mill, the tribulation is behind us, right? The big thing is there is no rapture in the post-millennial view. The only return of Christ is the one return that happens over here. And when does Christ come? He comes after or post-millennium, right? Premillennialists say, well, he's coming premillennium. The post say he's coming post-millennium after the millennium. And the way we get to the millennium is we need to usher in the millennium, this golden age of peace throughout the world, right? And the, the outlook here is far more optimistic. All right, there's one more view that I want to touch on, and this is where I land. So let's touch on the, the ah or the amillennialist uh, view. The, the uh, amillennialist view is typically like I'm a preterist and 
some idealist lens, so I look at most of the things in Revelation, at least up to chapter 20, happening in the past, in the fulfillment. Um, millennialists suggest no millennium. Anytime you put an A in front of the word, uh, it is a negative prefix, right? So there's a theist and then there's an atheist, right? No God or without God. There is a moral and then there's someone who is amoral, without morals or no morals. So amillennial would typically mean no millennium, but that's kind of deceiving, right? And I'll explain what all of that, all of that means. All right. Um, let me debate something here. Uh, talk amongst yourselves. I'm going to try to get you a... Uh, I won't be able to get it. All right. Um, I had a version where this was higher up. I know it's tough to see through my fat butt, but you're going to need to do the, the best that you can. I apologize, but uh, we'll, we'll make it happen. All right. So the amillennialist view is the idea uh, that there is certainly a millennium, but let's talk about what that means. The timeline is still the same. I'm trying to move out of the way a little bit. So the timeline is still the same. There is a cross. There is the resurrection. Uh, there is the ascension. And there is Pentecost that empowers the church. And then it leads us into the church age. Nothing has changed in the amillennialist view. All of it is the same. Where are we at in the timeline? Well, we're somewhere in the church age there, right? It can be anywhere on that timeline. Again, because it's a preterist or an idealist view, an amillennialist is looking at the tribulation as being behind us, things that have largely already happened. Now, before I continue, let me bring up the other two overlays, and there's going to be a lot coming on the screen, and it's going to hurt your eyes, but... I want you to just kind of see some of the difference. We're exactly the same for the first little bit, uh, the first four events, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and Pentecost. All of it launches into the church age. We're all in the church age, right? Everybody agrees on that. The premillennialists up top, they're looking, for the rap they're looking for the rapture, and that red box is the tribulation. The postmillennialists in the middle, they say, no, 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 the tribulation is behind us. And the amillennialists would agree, much in the same way as the postmillennialists, that the tribulation has happened behind us. All of us say we're in the church age, right? So there, there is agreement to, 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 to that degree. Here is the distinguishing mark of amillennialism. This idea that we are in the millennium. Not that we have to bring the millennium, but that we are literally in the millennium as we speak. The, the thousand year, figurative, the thousand year reign of Christ, a amillennialist would say, we don't bring the millennium like that one above it, that it started when the church was birthed, that started this idea of the millennium. Now that's a distinguishing mark uh, about the amillennialism position. We're in the millennium. We don't establish it. We don't usher it in. We are in it. Now, the thousand-year reign of Christ here, again, it's figurative. It's not literal. We talked about that, same as the amill. The amillennialists would say that the millennium reign of Christ is not coming later, as the pre-mills would say, right? It's coming here, and they would say we have to usher it in. The amill says, no, 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 this entire part of the church age that's the millennium. We're in it, right? Now, he's not reigning physically from earth, but Jesus is reigning spiritually from heaven. 
That's the distinguishing mark from an all-mill position. I hope you're tracking with me. I wish we had that up higher, but we'll make what we can. All right? That's the distinguishing mark of the all-mill position. Now, if you're tracking with me around this point, if you remember what we just read, you had to say, okay, time out, pastor. Time out. Time out. One of your objections should be, well, if Revelation says that Satan is bound during the millennium, when was Satan bound? Right? Let's read Revelation 20 again. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. Can you go to that next slide, Esther? Do you have that? I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the keys to the abyss, right? And holding in his hand a great chain, and he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. If you're tracking with me, you're like, okay, okay, wait a second, wait a second. So if Satan is bound, and you're saying that now is the millennium, then when was Satan bound? Track with me. Scripture carries this common theme, and it's the assumption that all of creation has been seized by a cosmic force that opposes God and all that is good. And God is now engaged in a spiritual war to reconcile and restore all of creation back to himself. This means that in order for us to understand the mission and the purpose of Jesus, we must see everything that Jesus did, his birth, ministry, death on a cross, resurrection, as part of the grand narrative of how God established and is establishing his kingdom over spiritual forces that oppose him. In other words, we could say it like this. Everything that Jesus did was an expression of the spiritual war taking place between the kingdom of God and the opposing kingdom of Satan. So let me give you some examples. In Mark 3, Jesus said, No one can enter a strong man's house and take the strong man's possession. The strong man was Satan. He says, Unless someone stronger than the strong man can kick the strong man's butt. I paraphrase that a little bit, right? He said the only way it's possible to, to enter a strong man's domain and take a strong man's stuff is if somebody is stronger than the strong man can bind the strong man. Now, every time Jesus healed the sick or he cast out demons or he raised some from the dead, he said things like the kingdom of God is at hand. He said things like the kingdom of God has come or the kingdom of God is near or the kingdom of God is breaking in among us, Right? Remember, the kingdom of God is not a location. Anytime you read kingdom of God, it's not a location. It's a, it's a reality. Wherever the rule and reign and power of God is, that's where the kingdom of God is. So when Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, he was saying that the rule, reign, and power of God is present to deal with sickness, to deal with death, to deal with the demonic. And anytime the rule and reign of God was present... That was the kingdom of God was there. So Jesus often, right, this kingdom motif is, is throughout the New Testament. So he says the kingdom of God is near. The rule and reign of God is near. Here's what I want you to know. The mission of Jesus was not only to forgive you of sin. That's a huge part of it, but that's not the whole story. Everything he did Everything he taught, every miracle, every time he elevated the marginalized, every moment he gave value to an outcast, every time he exposed evil and darkness in his willingness to endure the cross and the power that raised him from the dead, it was Jesus emphatically inserting that I am the strong man. I am the one strong enough to bind the strong man. That's what Jesus was saying. Right? That, that hey, if, if the only way you can take the possession from the strong man is if someone stronger than the strong man comes along, he's saying, I'm the one. Right? I'm strong enough to handle Satan, is what Jesus was saying. Now, 
What that means is that you cannot view the cross through a personal vacuum. That only means the forgiveness of your sin. That's a huge part of it, but that's not the whole story. Listen to what Scripture says about what Jesus accomplished. First John, the reason the Son of God appeared, what, was to destroy the devil's work. Colossians 2.15, in this way he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. And not only did he disarm them, but he shamed them publicly by his victory over them, where? On the cross. Listen to Hebrews 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, now let me read an easier translation. It says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also had to become flesh and blood. And then it continues in the NIV. He too shared in their humanity. Right? He took on flesh and blood. Why? So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. Listen to me. Listen to me. Something happened back in, 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 in this era right here. And what happened back here in, in, in this cross era, this is where Satan was bound. Right? This is what everything in Scripture points to. That through the cross, through the resurrection, Satan was bound. Jesus publicly put him to shame. Now, track with me because now you should have another question. Right? Your pushback should be, okay, well, if Satan is bound now, and pastor, I can see that, that the cross accomplished this thing and Satan was bound, I, I, I get that. Now, your question should be, if Satan is bound, why is there so much evil in the world? Like, is this the best Jesus could do? Like, you bind Satan, but look around us. Now, let's let Scripture speak for itself. Go back to Revelation 20. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the keys to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him in the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short period of time. What I want you to notice is what the scripture doesn't say. It doesn't say that evil is wiped out from the world. It doesn't imply that sin and evil are done away with. It doesn't even say that Satan is powerless. What it says is that there is a binding that accomplished something. In other words, it's not all-inclusive. It has a specific application. And here's the application, to keep him from deceiving the nation. So an amillennialist would say, all right, Satan is bound. It's not going to bring this golden age, but the binding of Satan means that, that he has been kept from deceiving the nations. Let's talk about what that means. Old Testament age, God worked through one group of people. Who was it? The Jews. Right? And they didn't even get it. Right? Jump to the New Testament, Jesus is like saying to the Jewish leaders, like you search the scripture looking for the Messiah and you don't recognize that I am the one in front of you. Right? They, 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 they completely missed it. Here's what I want you to understand. Do you realize that since the cross, right? since this binding of Satan here, do you realize that since the cross and the resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that gospel message, where God was originally just working through the Jews, has now erupted to the entire world. This is what I believe it means when it says Satan has lost his, his grip, or at least is restricted, and he is no longer able to deceive the nations, meaning, meaning the world was in complete darkness before the cross. And now there is light that has been ushered into God's 
creation. Entire, listen, entire civilizations have been transformed through the message of Jesus. All right? That, that, that's what I think it is referencing to. Let me give you just uh, uh, some, some ideas, right? The, the, the entire world was deceived. Today, the gospel has moved around the world. Literally, every tribe, every tongue, all mills say the only way that happens is if Satan is restricted, no longer deceiving the nations. Here's some examples of how Jesus changed the world. Women's rights, right? Throughout history, women were treated callously. And, and if you read the gospels, you will see how Jesus began to elevate and treat women with respect and treat them equally. Now, the church has taken a long time to respond to this, but there has been a slow roll towards this idea, and, and, and you cannot deny that Jesus and his teaching and his influence is what sparked this idea, right? Uh, um, in the, the early church, there was this incredible movement of women flocking to the church. Why? Because they finally had value. Right? Historians say that there were so many women going into the church that it was seen as a woman's religion. Guys, single guys were like, I want a part of that. Right? That's true. Not the guy part, but the women flocking to the church. Right? The church modeled what Jesus did, and we had our horrible failures. But there is this movement towards that. Human rights, again, horrible failures, but largely influenced by Jesus himself. Right? That people should be treated with dignity. That was an extremely rare case prior to Christ. What about humanitarian aid? Caring for the poor and the needy is a strong part of Christian legacy. Today, it's a, that legacy of caring for those in need continues. A recent study showed that 75% of all charitable donations are motivated by faith. This is something that Jesus influenced. Right? Christians have sent missionaries around the world to minister to people's needs, both physically and spiritually. I want you to see how prior to the cross, the world was in darkness. Satan is bound to the, put publicly to shame through the work on the cross, the resurrection, and now the gospel begins to spread. In other words, we cannot calculate how much life has been spared, sickness has been treated, and the hungry fed because of the teachings of Jesus that has influenced culture. What about this? Education and science for much of history, right? The world saw uh, everything being ran through spirits and demons with small g gods. Now, Professor R uh, Rodney Sparks, in his book, The God of Glory, he says this, the scientific revolution of the 16th century was a result of Christian scholarship starting all the way back in the 11th century. Now, listen, physicist Paul Davis, who is not a believer, he said this, all the early scientists, such as Newton, were religious in one way or another. They saw their science as a means of uncovering traces of God's handiwork in the universe. Hey, Christians, I just, just as a side note, we should not be afraid of science today, right? Faith and science can work together quite nicely, right? So Francis Bacon, Galileo, Newton, Pascal, right? All, all inspired by their faith. Here's another one. What about changed lives, right? Uh, we never know how much Jesus has changed because of how he's transformed people. You don't know how your life has been changed or what may have happened if Jesus never got a hold of you. This is the gospel and the message of Jesus movie. Now that's not even to touch on business and arts and the government and the family. Entire civilizations transformed by the message of Jesus. Now the West typically acknowledges that more, right? But in every civilization just about you can see the, the influence of Christ teaching beginning to seep into culture. 
Listen, this is what I think it means when it says that Satan is bound so he will not be able to deceive the nations. The gospel message has gone forth. Right? Satan is bound, but he's still fighting. Let me just leave you with this and we'll wrap this up. June 6, 1944, right? it was the Allied invasion uh, of Normandy. 150,000 troops coming in, 5,000 ships, 800 aircraft, uh, assault on a 50-mile stretch of the Normandy coastline. 4,000 Allied troops died, 6,000 are wounded. But this was the key moment, the turning point in the war, right? where historians say this is where the war was won. Even though the war was won, Satan continued, or uh, Germany, sorry, that was, total, <laughs> that was a total uh, misstep. I really didn't mean that, uh, but it kind of fits. Uh, Germany kept fighting for another year, right? Even though victory was said to have happened on, on, on D-Day. It wasn't until May 7th, 1945, almost a year later, that Germany finally issued their Uncondition, their unconditional surrender. In other words, what I believe is that Satan has been defeated on the cross. He is restricted, but he still has some fight left in him, but his days are numbered because in the end he loses. That's what I think the, the all-millennialist position stands with. Look at Matthew 28 where Jesus says that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples of all the nations. The only reason I think Matthew 28 happens is because uh, of Revelation 20, because Satan has been bound by the cross and his influence to, to deceive the nations has been restricted. All right, so how does it all end in the millennialist view? Uh, well, at some point, uh, we have to say that Satan is loosed, right? Bad news coming here. Um, Satan is loosed. I, th- I think even in the millennialist view, I think there will be increased persecution that will come against the church. Um, I, I think things will get sideways, and I think they'll get sideways pretty, pretty bad. Let me give just a word of caution about this idea of persecution. Because we read things in Scripture about persecution, and we think, well, because it's not happening to us, it's not happening. And so we say things like, well, when the persecution comes, when the persecution comes, oh, the persecution's coming. If you would say that, to about a third of the Christian world. They'd be like, really? Like it's coming? We're living it. So let's, let's slow down, Western church, and recognize that although it hasn't come to us, doesn't mean it's not happening. All right, it, it's, it's kind of a, a disservice and a slap in the face to our brothers and sisters who are enduring death and imprisonment because of their faith. So let's, let's just slow down on that. Let's also slow down on, on, on just screaming that, that I'm being persecuted because you, know, you have to bake a cake for a gay wedding. I'm not saying that that's a small deal, but I, but I am saying let's put it in perspective with what our brothers and sisters across the pond are enduring, okay? There, there, there is persecution that, that, that is taking place, and it's life or death in some parts of the world, right? So I, I do think that, that there will be this release of Satan. I do think things are going to get ugly. I, I do think the, the, the church is going to get sideways. But as history often proves, that whenever there is persecution against the church, there is often a divine move of God, right? There is often this undercurrent of the Holy Spirit that's like, you can do what you want here, but I'm still going to get my people. I'm still going to get what's mine. And so I, I, I can certainly see that there is this outpouring of, of God in this time. So what eventually happens is there is Satan is loosed. There is the return and the judgment. There is one return in this view, 
right? There is one return, there is the resurrection, there is the judgment, and that, that ushers us into the eternal state. This is where I would land. I'm sorry for my big body blocking the view. I see some of you trying to take pictures. Uh, but this, this is, this is uh, where, where I would land uh, on this. Uh, but I hold it loosely. All right? So if you disagree with me, totally cool with that, baby. All right? That's okay. Here, 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 here. Then we were going to end in a song, but this took way longer than I thought. So we're not going to have time. Sorry, band. Um, here's what I want you to know. Regardless of what view you hold, regardless of what lens you read Scripture through, what I want you to know is that your job description is exactly the same. Your job description is to represent Jesus Christ in a world of darkness, right? So it doesn't matter if you're like waiting for the millennium, if you think we're in the millennium or we're going to usher in the millennium. Listen, you and I have a job to do. You are now the message of Jesus Christ that needs to be brought into our world. Not just through what you speak, but in how you live, right? And how you will take steps of risk to demonstrate the kingdom of God among you. Hey, you will never know if the kingdom of God is going to break in, the rule and reign of God, if you never take a risk to ask the kingdom of God to break in, right? So take a shot at praying for some people and see what God might be doing. While you're praying for people, here, here's a great question. When you're praying for people, ask them this. Are you sensing anything as I'm praying for you? Is God doing anything? Any thoughts entering your mind? Are you feeling anything in your body? And just bless whatever you know, they, they sense that God might be doing. Listen, church, if we do not do our job, the world suffers. Right? Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if you lose your flavor, Jesus you become useless. That's strong words. Matter of fact, he says, once salt loses its flavor, you just throw it out. It just gets trampled under feet. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You should be bringing people in to church to hear the message. You should be living out your faith. You should be uh, expecting and praying for the kingdom of God to break in among you. You should be risking to pray for people and be open to the things of the Holy Spirit as you're walking through a store or you're walking into church and you just kind of, well, that was a little weird. What God, what's the Holy Spirit, what, what are you doing right now? That's us, all of us. So regardless of where you land, ultimately, it doesn't matter what matters is you're actively participating in the job description, amen? amen? And the job description is to go and make disciples of all nations. Listen, I may have it wrong. We may all have it wrong. We may all get up to heaven and Jesus has a thing like this and says, hey, remember when you were stupid enough to do that? <laughs> now I'm going to be like, Al told me to do it. That was all his stuff, right? That's what I'm going to say. Listen, we may all have it a little wrong. But what I do know is right is he will return. And what I do know is right is Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And that needs to be communicated. All right, stand with me. And next week, such easy stuff. All right. I'm just telling you, I'm going to be happy. Saturdays have been 16-hour days. I'll be glad to get some time back. All right. Hey, uh, AV team, remind me to load this, the new version of this so 
not in the way. All right, let's pray. So, Lord, uh, what, what I just what I want to rest on is the idea of the cross and the resurrection that changed the world. It's changed me. It's changed us. And it will continue to change everyone who comes into contact with it. And the way people come into contact is by us being the mouthpiece, the hands and feet of Jesus to the world. And so, make us into an army that moves the gospel message forward. And accompany that with, we pray for signs and wonders and for words of wisdom and words of knowledge and things that are outside of our own ability. We do pray for revival to come to this community, to sweep across the state, across the nation, across the world. Do pray that you would strengthen your church to be the church that it needs to be. Holy Spirit, have your way among us. And that starts by yielding to you, surrendering ourselves to say, make me into everything you want me to be. And in that process, we don't wait to get busy until we're complete. We get busy while the process is happening. And so church, look at me. I release you. Look at me. I release you to be the message of Jesus Christ and to demonstrate the kingdom of God, praying for the the, the rule and reign of God to break in. Now, go do it. God bless you. Amen.